You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The text for this morning's sermon is Acts 8, 9-25. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, give us ears to hear. Open the eyes of our hearts because we want to hear from you. To whom shall we go this morning? You have the words of eternal life. Give us a heart for your word. In Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Satan hates the spread of the gospel. He hates the message of Jesus. He hates it. So, when the gospel is spreading and people are believing and being baptized, he will do whatever he can in his power to distract and derail the continued success of the mission of Jesus. In our study of Acts, we've witnessed revival in Jerusalem. And today, we'll see revival in Samaria. And a little bit of a spoiler alert, we're going to see revival go to the ends of the earth. God is on the move So Satan comes in to deflect and distort the churches. 
It's Matthew 13, 25 at work, where the enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat. And this I see as the presenting problem of Acts 8. Our text was Simon, the Samaritans, and the gospel. An individual, a people group, and the hope of the world. Perhaps, Christian, you came in this morning feeling defeated. Maybe it's in your struggle with personal sin. Or perhaps you, your heart is grieved by what you see out in the world. Like injustices because of someone's race. Or perhaps our, blat- our world's blatant disregard for human life concerning abortion. Maybe closer to home, brokenness in your family or addiction. Or perhaps it's just suffering that you're facing or the suffering of a loved one going through an illness. There is hope for you this morning from our passage. For in it we find the power of God in the gospel. And I want you to see that power this morning. I want you to know that power this morning. If you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn to Acts 8. We're going to look at verses 9 through 25, which we just read. This text displays the unignorable and incorruptible power of the gospel. The unignorable and incorruptible power of the gospel. It's two marks of the power of the gospel I see from our text. So I want to look at those in turn. The first mark is that the power of the gospel is unignorable. It's unignorable. We see that in verses 9 through 17. So what do we mean by saying that it's unignorable? It means that you cannot ignore the gospel's power. No one can. And I see two reasons directly from the text. First, because no power can compare to that power. And second, because no people group uh, is excluded from that power. So the first reason, no power can compare to the power of the gospel. Notice verse 9, we're introduced to an individual named Simon. But there was a man named Simon. And the text says he previously practiced magic in the city. So he's known as Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer. And we find that he dealt with the supernatural long before he heard the Christian gospel, before Philip introduced the gospel to him. In the middle of verse 9, it says, he amazed the people of Samaria. So we'd say that Simon was a notable figure in Samaria, a celebrity of sorts. He earned the fame of being a successful sorcerer. From the first century historians, we learn that Samaria was actually saturated with this kind of idea. Witchcraft, sorceries, magical arts, the occult. So we could certainly say that Simon was a man steeped in the spirit of his age. Much like you and I are, steeped in the spirit of our age. And he boasted of himself. We find that at the end of verse 9, saying that he himself was somebody great. I can't help but think about professional athletes today or celebrities. They are very good at saying they are somebody great. Well, he calls himself great. That is, he portrays himself as some kind of type of heavenly power. And well, the Samaritans paid careful attention to him. You see that at the beginning of verse 10. And they all paid attention to him. 
So Simon was not a man who merely entertained with cheap, tra- cheap, cheap tricks. And we can conclude from that. Like, like probably what we think of when we think of the word magic. So we know the gospel triumphs over magic. But maybe in your head is someone like David Copperfield, uh, where it's a kind of sleight of hand or illusions or those kind of tricks. That's not what's, ha- what's happening here. So don't think David Copperfield. Rather, he must have had some real power. Now, how do we know that? Well, I think there's three evidences here in our text. First, he amazed everyone regardless of status. Verse 10 notes who was paying attention to him. Look at it. It says all, from the least to the greatest. So he'd reached people from every strata of society. I heard the saying this week, you can't fool all the people all the time. Apparently, Simon had here, right? He had swept them completely off their feet. Second, he was seen as a deity. That's what the quote at the end of verse 10 is really referring to. This man is the power of God that is called great. So he had powers that the Samaritans could only attribute to a god. We see it in other places in Acts with even the apostles doing signs and miracles. Third, his magic or sorcery was not easily explained away because he was with them for a long time. Notice what verse 11 says. They paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. So it wasn't cheap tricks. We can conclude that he had some kind of real power. We don't have time to turn there, but Acts 13, 6 through 11, Paul accuses Elemis, the sorcerer, and he does so by calling him a son of the devil and by accusing him of practicing trickery. You see that? So there's both demonic influence and human trickery together in that passage in Acts 13. And I think we could safely assume that's what's happening in our text as well. So in short, Simon was, in the eyes of the Samaritans, amazing. He had a power not easily ignored. And he knew great power when he saw it. And that's what makes the next interaction with Philip so remarkable. As we saw last week, Philip comes on the scene in verse 5 and 6, preaching the gospel and doing supernatural signs. Using the same words used of Simon, Luke says the crowds also paid attention to Philip. So suddenly the tables have turned on Simon. Philip was seen as having an effective, fruitful ministry of word and deed, a ministry of preaching and a ministry of power. The first signal of the unignorable power of the gospel is that Philip refuses to be confused or intimidated by sorcery. He comes into this setting and it's notable that he doesn't refrain from using signs and wonders. Even though it appears there's a tendency here in the Samarit- with the Samaritans by their response to Simon for the occult. It's striking that he comes into this situation preaching the kingdom of God in the, in the name of Jesus Christ and doing supernatural signs of healing and deliverance. And although he started gathering a crowd like Simon, notice how he is a stark contrast to Simon. Simon pointed to himself, while Philip pointed to Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and not to himself. 
And when the Samaritans hear Philip's preaching, they believe, verse 12 says, but when they believed Philip. And notice it is the preaching that brings about their belief. It was not the signs. In fact, most often the purpose of miracles is always to draw people into considering the message. That's what we find in Acts and in all the scriptures. Dick Lucas, a longtime preacher in London, did a series on this chapter. And when it came to this idea, he said this, quote, Miracles command our attention, but they cannot compel our belief, end quote. When we think about the power of the gospel, true power is in the message Philip preached. The message of the New Testament is more amazing than the miracles of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is more amazing than the miracles of the New Testament. Here is real power, and it's in what Philip preached. He preached the good news, that God has come to earth in the person of his son Jesus to deliver a death blow to our greatest, two greatest enemies, sin and death. And he did that by dying and being raised from the dead. And in him, God offers peace, but it's on his terms. That is, we come through repentance and faith. And it's his believers, it's believers who receive the Spirit of God. It's believers who receive the gift of the Spirit, and that is the power who is now within us. And that is truly amazing. He preached the kingdom, he preached of the kingdom of God. Christ's rule has broken into the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in the name of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, he is our Messiah who fulfills all Old Testament expectations. He doesn't shy away from the disagreements that the Samaritans and the Jews had. No, he preaches Christ. He preaches Jesus as the Christ. And Samaritans believed this. This message. Do you believe it? It's amazing to behold and this is the power of the gospel. It says the Samaritans at the end of verse 12, they were baptized both men and women. You see, the power of the gospel is at work and on display in Samaria, and that becomes even more clear in what happens next. Verse 13 tells us that Simon also believed. Now, I think as we'll see, this is Simon just merely professing Christ. It goes along with baptism. Uh, as a means to an end. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Meaning Simon mirrored and walked around with Philip. He, he kept company with him. He became a, a groupie, you know, someone who follows a movie star around. Why? Because he was amazed by miracles. He was amazed by his miracles. Seeing great signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Philip impressed Simon. He who amazed others was himself amazed. I think Simon knew real power when he saw it. And this was a kind of power he'd never seen before. And the point I draw from this is that the power of the gospel is superior to any other power. Simon, wielding the greatest magical power in the world, recognizes God's power operating in Philip. Philip's power is unignorable because it's greater than the power of this famous sorcerer. 
What the church brings is distinct from that which the world offers. It's distinct. And Simon knew real power and that it was stronger than any power he had ever met. Brothers and sisters, we can sometimes drift into thinking that the world has great power. So much that we are intimidated or afraid. This is shown by our anxiety or fear. So it's good for us to be reminded that the one true God is greater than any other power we'll encounter in life. Just to remind that simple fact, nothing can compare to him. The greatest impact we can have is proclaiming him, proclaiming Jesus to those around us. That as you want to do something with your life, share the gospel. Share the gospel. This is the power of God. So that's the first reason the power of God is unignorable, is that nothing can compare to it. But there's another one. It's unignorable because no people group is excluded from it. No people group is excluded from it. And we find the apostles learn that, that, the, that Samaria had received the word of God. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. The entire region of Samaria is said to have received the word. You probably remember that Samaritans were not popular with Jews because the Jewish people despised them for being unfaithful and having mixed ancestry. This goes back to the exile. Uh, when a remnant was left in Samaria and they intermarried with foreigners coming into the land. And so they were seen or treated as half-breeds. Just a few references. John 4.9, with woman at the well, there's a parenthesis. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Luke 17.18 speaks of them as another race. Luke 9.54, it's interesting, John comes on the scene. If you remember, in Luke 9.54, Luke describes in his gospel as John wanting on one occasion to call down fire. Uh, from heaven to consume a Samaritan city. So there is no love loss between these two people groups. But it's not as though, not as though ethnic and racial problems and prejudices uh, were only present in the first century. No, they are much alive today, sadly. We deal with them maybe more than ever. So we desperately need to hear God's word on these matters. What happens when the Samaritans, despised ones, those hated by the Jews, respond to the gospel in faith? What happens? Luke tells us how the apostles hear and send Peter and John. And I think their mission is to ask this question. Is what just happened in Samaria the same as what happened to us in Jerusalem? Is it the same work of God going on in Samaria? What happens next? They come down and they pray for them that they might receive the Spirit. Verse 15. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit? And apparently, verse 16 tells us the reason. Because the Samaritans did not receive the Spirit when they believed. The end of verse 16 makes this clear. They'd only been baptized in the name of Jesus. They'd only experienced water baptism. 
So what's going on here? Well, one thing is clear, and that is the Spirit is not beholden to anyone. Right? The Spirit is a gift from God bestowed when and where He wants. Which means this delay is under God's sovereign hand and for His purposes. And I think the response of the apostles confirmed this. They were completely dependent. First, they prayed. They laid their, then they laid their hands on them. Luke is showing that the apostles were not those who dispensed the Spirit. Spirit moves wherever he wishes. And the laying on of hands on these believers was only a sign of their fellowship and identification with them, that they believed the same gospel, resulting in unity. So Peter and John were doing a confirming work. I think we all uh, know the feeling when a boss reviews your work and says, yes, you're on the right track. It's a confirming work here. And this move by the apostles serves to unite the people of God. For their prayer becomes the means by which God shows his acceptance of those Samaritans in front of the whole church. So you could say there are no half-breeds in the church of God. Luke says, and they received the Holy Spirit in verse 17. Now this moment was paramount, had paramount significance for the church. For the Spirit falling on these believers is a clear indication that the Samaritans truly believed and God accepted them. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly what happened or what it was the sign that the Spirit came. But it's obvious it was something visible because Simon sees it. And he wants that power. And so, like in other areas of Acts, when spirit baptism happens, it's probably tongues of some sort. So how come there is this delay? I mean, you maybe read this passage and, passage and thought, what's with the delay of the Holy Spirit in this text? Well, what it's not teaching is some kind of two-stage spirit baptism. That is, not as the normal way that people receive the Spirit. That's cleared up by two little words in verse 16. For he, the Spirit, had not yet. Not yet. So it's an expectation that at belief, the Spirit comes. The normal experience is what Peter says in Acts 2.38. Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the normal uh, experience. Baptism was later, uh, the later coming of the Spirit is an exception, not the norm. Our text is not meant for a paradigm for us to think of this two-stage baptism. So, what is going on here? We see it's where the church is breaking new ground, that the Spirit acts in this way, confirming and affirming the continued mission of Jesus. Think Acts 2. To, the, to Jerusalem, Acts 10, here, uh, our text, in the Acts 10, Gentiles, Acts 19, showing that the gospel's movement along Christ's mission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the Spirit shows that there's new ground being made. And positively, I want to argue that God withheld his Spirit uniquely here, in this situation, to make it clear that it was through one's response to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not through some inclusion into the Jewish race or, or Israel. There is one church. In other words, 
ethnic barriers are obliterated by the power of the gospel. No people group is excluded from our message. Not one. So I see so many implications for this, but I'll settle this morning for just two. One, this text reveals that part of the church's calling is to take initiative in these matters by applying the message of the gospel hope across racial and ethnic lines. That is, we can't take a back seat. As a Christian, you cannot ignore other people groups. Second, the world should know, the world should not have any explanation to the unity of the church other than the glorious gospel of Jesus. Our churches should not be divided or separated by economic status or social status or race. The gospel unites us. Paul says in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is no male or f- and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I hope you see how the gospel power can do something about ethnic barriers. Because the gospel knows no bounds, and we need this message today more than ever. The power of the gospel cannot be ignored. For Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. So the first mark of the power of the gospel is that it's unignorable. The second is that it's incorruptible. The power of the gospel is incorruptible, and we see this in the rest of the text, verses 18 through 25. We find that the Spirit cannot be manipulated for personal gain. He is neither corruptible or control, he is neither controllable nor subject to purchase. The Spirit comes by God's direction as a gift. He is to be received as a gift, and God will not tolerate corruption. We should see this in our in today. with the various scandals in the Catholic Church and in in other, in Protestant uh, denominations. God will not tolerate corruption. Notice verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Simon wants the ability to give the Holy Spirit. He offers the apostles money. Look at his words in verse 19, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands, may receive the Holy Spirit. He found this is the perfect power to fit into his act. The power of dispensing the Holy Spirit whenever and to whomever he wanted. So we see that his heart is suddenly exposed because it's clear for Simon that following Philip was only a quest to gain more power. And then we see in, P- in this, in Peter's strongly rebuke, in verse 28, his strong rebuke. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Literally, he says, May your silver perish with you in hell. This is certainly a strong warning. In fact, J.B. E. Phillips' paraphrase says, To hell with you and your money. 
And you can tell, even in the ESV, it's a severe rebuke. Paul warns that this judgment could happen and places the responsibility on Simon. Why? Because he thought he could purchase the giving of the Spirit. He's asking to dispense God to people. Look carefully at verse 20. Do you see the contradiction of terms? You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. As if God gives something, then you cannot buy it. If it's a gift, you can't buy it. But if you buy it, then it's not a gift. This is, uh, this is what I think is the crux of the matter for Simon. The spirit cannot be bought. He is incorruptible. The spirit is not for sale. He is wholly different than from whatever Simon was involved with. God is sovereign and he blows with his power when and wherever he chooses. And it's a good reminder for us. God is sovereign and he blows wherever he chooses. He is not beholden to us. We can't put pressure on him. He does what he pleases. Now our hearts may not be in danger of buying the ability to give the spirit. But we can be tempted to use the church and the gospel for ourselves. We can be tempted to use the church and the gospel for personal gain. Maybe it's money. But maybe more likely it's social status. Or to garner a following to feel good about yourself. So that you have a people that think you're pretty great. And here's the warning for you. This is corruption. It's corruption in the church. And this text says it will not be tolerated. God does not tolerate corruption. And he knows your heart. And it's clear that Simon didn't understand the, diff the significance of this power. He saw the Spirit as a means to boast about himself. Verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. That gets to the root of Simon's problem. Peter says, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right with God. Verse 22 talks about the intent of Simon's heart being forgiven. Peter tells Simon in verse 22 that he must repent because of his heart. It's wicked what he did. And notice that the responsibility, like I said, is on Simon. What we don't see is the apostles just dispensing forgiveness to Simon, like what has been taught in the Roman Catholic Church for centuries. The idea is here, maybe if you repent, maybe God will forgive and pardon you. See, God cannot be for forced or manipulated. Verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And maybe you scratch your head at that. He is in the gall of bitterness. Which means he's wanting to buy the Spirit. His wanting to buy the Spirit shows that his heart was bitterly envious. Or poisonously so. And that he's under the bond of iniquity, namely, he is captive to sin. And we see Simon's response in verse 24. He answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said to me may come upon me. And though you can see that his response is not wholly negative, 
What is clear is that he does not embrace Peter's instruction and warning. Rather than pray to God and turn from his sin, he asked the apostles to pray for him. And there is no record that the apostles prayed any such prayer. And even if they did, there's no possibility that such a prayer could ultimately save Simon. Unfortunately, the one thing that Simon does not do here is repent. He needed to admit his sin, turn from it, and he did not. So we have to address the question, is Simon a believer? Is Simon a believer? Here's six reasons that I, don't, I think he is not a believer. In fact, his belief is false, the belief that's described in verse 13. First, the way we're introduced to Simon seems to hint that his response is rooted in just a desire to add more power. You see that the whole, all the way through. Second, Samaritans have an object of their faith when it's described. Philip, uh, Simon doesn't have any object to his faith. Maybe the object was signs and wonders. So I read a powerful illustration of this, and it went something like this. Um, <clears throat> it has to do with the experience that a mother has with a toddler. Suppose you're sitting with the toddler on your lap, and suddenly in the window there's a beautiful bird, and you hold out your hand to point at that bird. And you tell the baby, look at that bird. You say, look at the bird. What does the child look at? Your hand. In fact, the child may even imitate the fact that you're, po you're pointing. He sees the sign and he's excited because you're excited. He joins in imitating the sign as best he can, but the problem is he never sees the bird. The whole point is that the sign is missed, and that's what happened with Simon the magician here in Acts 8. He saw the signs Philip was doing. They were better than his own magical practices. He got excited about them, and he followed Philip around. He imitated him, but he never saw the bird in the window. He was amazed by miracles and less amazed by the grace of the gospel. Three, the way Luke separates Simon from the Samaritans leads this, to this conclusion, including why Simon follows Philip. The text says why, to see his signs and wonders. Four, the fact he thinks he can buy uh, uh, the authority or the ability to dispense the Spirit means he doesn't understand what just happened to him theologically. He has a serious lack of understanding of the gospel and the promise of the Spirit. And fundamentally, he sees the Spirit as a power and not a person. Five, Peter's description in verse 23 of Simon's heart shows that Simon is separate from God and needs to repent. The rebuke of Peter alone shows Simon was not a real believer. He professed Christ for superficial reasons. And I think there is a warning here for us, too, as well. That you can be enamored with the gospel, like Simon. And you can believe its essential content, like it appears that Simon did. But like Simon, you cannot be a child of God. Six. Simon's failure to follow Peter's instruction exposes a disconnect in his life. What is Simon missing? He was missing heartfelt recognition of his sin, true, broken, humble repentance. That is the sign of a believer. Amazement and excitement about signs and wonders is not saving faith. 
True faith comes when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we, have, we, we, we can have all the spiritual experiences possible, but until we turn to the Lord himself, there will be no true faith. Therefore, I take it to mean that Simon was not really converted. He has no part or lot in this matter of Christianity. His heart was not right with God. There was nothing in his baptism. Baptism isn't magical. It was just a bath. He still needs to repent. He is still enslaved to bitterness and iniquity. He is still in his sin and not yet converted. And this is confirmed by the early church. There are church that Simon went on to be a heretic and not a true Christian. So what's going on? I think Simon's case is what Jesus referred to in Luke 8, 13, where he describes the second soil like this. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. That faith is not real saving faith. Verse 25 shows that the mission to the Samaritans continued. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So this message of the gospel continues to spread because the gospel is unignorable and it's incorruptible. You cannot ignore the gospel. And you cannot connect, uh, in corrupt the gospel. God will not tolerate corruption. So let me conclude with this final thought as we come to the Lord's table. There is hope in repentance. There is hope in repentance. Brother and sister, if you are here this morning and you find yourself in the clutches of sin, and maybe like Simon, the old way of life has come into the new. Or maybe this is the first time you've clearly heard the gospel. You've heard the good news of Jesus. Realize this. The ending of Simon's story does not have to be the ending of your story. The ending of Simon's story doesn't have to be the ending of your, your story this morning. Take what Peter says in verse 22 to heart. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. In a moment, we'll take the Lord's table as baptized believers and I'm going to encourage all of us to examine our hearts and ask this question. Is my heart right before God? Is my heart right before God? Guilty ones, if you're feeling guilty, I want to remind you of what Christ secured and what this table pictures from Isaac Watts. No more, my God. I boast no more. Of all the duties I have done, I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Let's pray.
Father, we pray for you to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think. According to the power, the power now at work within us, a power that is unignorable and a power that is incorruptible. To you, Lord, be glory in this church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.